so good to be with you today. The words may sound strong, but I just want to say that I love you. I love my church family. If you're visiting today, I may not have met you yet, but I love you. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. In, uh, in 2011, my uh, closest friend, uh, Greg Hewlett, he died of cancer at the age of 42. Um, as I was preparing my sermon yesterday, I took a photo of him on my desk. This is my desk, right, out here to the right. There's a photo of him there with my boys on either side of him. Uh, some years ago, my boys are adults now, and uh, he's, we're at uh, Spring Creek Barbecue in Richardson, Texas. Anybody been there other than my wife? Anyway, you, you, don't, you don't get the kind of service uh, here. I've never gotten the kind of service here that you get at a barbecue in Texas where uh, hot rolls are coming out constantly, and uh, there'd be young ladies in dresses with a basket full of hot rolls. And when you're a young man, I mean, you could just eat 30, 40, 50, 100 of these rolls. Anyway, I'm already leaving my manuscript, but here we go. Uh, so this is a picture of my friend uh, that's on my desk. And he and I grew up together in Jesus. Uh, we became Christians at the same time uh, through the same servant of the Lord who led us to Christ. And we spent many nights uh, talking late, late into the night, my friend Greg and I. He was the best man at my wedding. Uh, he uh, helped me in many ways. I gained wisdom from him, and I think he from me on important matters like who we should marry. Uh, he gave me wisdom to marry my wife, Michelle, of 31 years. And I'm very thankful for my friendship with him. Uh, my friendship with him is not repeatable. Um, I can't relive all of those late nights in my formative years with my current friends. Can't really do that. So I, I grieve uh, the loss of Greg. Uh, that's why I have the photo here on my desk. There are days, obviously, where I don't really see that photo. And then there are other days where I really uh, see it. I bring up Greg, who was uh, my best man at my wedding in 1992, uh, because God knows that you and I need help uh, to know how to grieve. In today's passage, uh, David is grieving. But I'm going to use another word for grieving in the sermon, um, and that is the word lament. We could call today's passage of Scripture that we're about to get into um, a psalm. To be more precise, we could call this passage of Scripture today a psalm of lament. Obviously, it's not in the book of Psalms, but it is of that genre. It is a psalm of lament. What is a lament, you might ask? It is a formal expression of sorrow or mourning. 
especially in verse or song. That is what we are about to look at. This poetry, this psalm of lament that David wrote after many people that he loved died, including Saul and Jonathan. The man who wrote this psalm of lament, I love how he is described in 2 Samuel 23, the sweet psalmist of Israel. That would be a cool way to be known, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He's better known, David is, by his description, God's words description in 1 Samuel 13, a man after God's own heart, a man after his own heart. He's the one that wrote this out of a context of grieving, of loss. And he has written this in part because the people of God need help in knowing how to lament, how to grieve. That's why this passage, inspired by the Spirit, is here. So let's dive into it. Hopefully you have your Bibles open. If you don't, there's Bibles in front of you. You can pull out a device. The passage that Don just read, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Let's take a look, beginning at verse 17. It says, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. If you're visiting today or you haven't been here, there's just been a battle. And on the battlefield, Israel lost, and there were many deaths, including Saul and Jonathan. Verse 18. So he, he took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah, men here is, is generic, the men, the women, the boys and girls of Judah be taught this lament. That's an important little phrase. He's writing this not solely for himself, but there is a didactic purpose for the people of God to learn how to lament, how to grieve, how to mourn. That's why he wrote this. And it is called this Lament of the Bow. And it is written in the book of Jasher. This isn't a common uh, book. We don't know or have this book today. Some books are lost. We have an amazing uh, manuscript history for the New Testament, for the Old Testament. The book of Jasher is lost. We don't have it. But in that book of Jasher was this psalm of lament. Also in that book of Jasher was Joshua chapter 10. You might remember where the sun stood still. You remember that? Say yes. That also was in the book of Jasher. I've been joking with Don that the book of Jasher is under a large rock on his property, but I don't think it is. We, have, we haven't found it. We don't know what it was, but it was recorded. It recorded this psalm of lament. I <clears throat> had some trouble with this translation uh, getting into my soul, and so I wanted to put verse 18 on the screen uh, for you today from the New English translation. 
It says, he gave instructions that the people of Judah should be taught the bow. And they put it in quotes and titles. This is the way I think this verse is to be understood. This is the title of this lament, this poetic expression, this psalm of how to grieve. So that's the introduction, and we begin the actual lament or psalm in verse 19. It says, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. In my Bible, I've got that circled, that refrain, how the mighty have fallen. It is the theme of this psalm of lament. We see it here in verse 19. Then I've got it circled in my Bible in verse 25, how the mighty have fallen. And then this lament closes, verse 27, how the mighty have fallen. Many mighty warriors of God died on the battlefield. These were relationships, people that David knew well, including Saul and Jonathan. Back to the text, we're at verse 19. That refrain, how the mighty have fallen. Then verse 20, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. What's coming out of of David's heart here is this, this inconceivable reality in his mind. The inconceivable reality is that there's partying going on across the countryside in Philistine territory. That they're celebrating this victory. That they're they're. They're drinking and eating and feasting. And so his heart is crying out that this ought not to be. Don't don't proclaim this in in, in those streets. The the daughters of of the Philistines are, are, are dancing and singing and this just brings great pain to his soul. And he's expressing this in verse 20. Look at verse 21. O mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. The imagery here is the great king of Israel would have this shield that was meticulously cared for. It was beautiful. It was anointed, if you will, with oil. And that's no longer happening. And so David, in verse 21, is expressing his heart of that that there won't be rain, there won't be dew in the Philistine territories. He's, He's just being brutally honest here, which is to teach us to be brutally honest in our own grieving with God. When you are full of pain and sadness, that you ought not to hide that. I alluded to this last week in the couple of verses where we talked about this, where I don't know if you feel this sense, if I'm reading our American culture, but we, when, I, when I read our American culture and I feel it myself sometimes that, that if there's grief or mourning or lamenting going on, that we, we're kind of like, 
we, we cover up those tears and we, we apologize. You know what I'm getting at? That is not biblical. That is not what the Bible says we should do when we are mourning, when we are weeping. We're going to see it says the opposite. And what we see here is David's brutal honesty saying, I don't want any rain to fall over there. I don't want them to have crops. They're out there celebrating when the people of God, the covenant people of God, have been wiped out by them. He's just crushed. He, he's, and he's being brutally honest with God. So to summarize what's going on in verses 19 through 21, to, to paraphrase it, to summarize it, I would say, David is expressing, this is not the way things ought to be. He's expressing it in this poetic psalm that believers, including believers in 2023, could utilize and learn from. Why did he write this? He wrote this so that the people of Judah, more collectively, the people of God across the centuries, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would be taught this lament, that we would learn how to lament and how to grieve and how to weep. David is saying, to paraphrase his beautiful poetry, this is not the way things ought to be. It's quite a contrast. If you look at our secular world, to be more precise, our academic, secular, atheistic world, the people that tend to rule most of our universities, how they say we should respond to death. One of the leaders, one of the leading popular atheistic secular uh, leaders is a guy I've quoted before named Richard Dawkins. In his book, um, Unweaving the Rainbow, which I do not recommend. <laughs> he says this. This is page one of the book. We are going to die, and that makes us the lucky ones. So he substantiates this radical first sentence of his book this way. He says, most people are never going to die because they are never going to be born. The potential people who could have been here in my place, but who will in fact never see the light of day, outnumber the sand grains of Arabia. Certainly those unborn ghosts include greater poets than Keats, scientists greater than Newton. We know this because the set of possible people allowed by our DNA so massively exceeds the set of actual people. In the teeth of these stupefying odds, it is you and I in our ordinariness that are here. If you're tracking with him, he's using statistics. He's using mathematics to say, we should just be thankful that we're alive. 
And then, this didn't make it into the book. This is, he's often quoted, this is an often quoted passage. And the sentence I'm about to read didn't make it into his book, but this guy travels his, with his atheistic, secular ideology and speaks on our campuses across our country, including at UC Berkeley. And when he was there, he added this sentence at the end of that sentence in his book that isn't in his book. He said this, We privileged few who won the lottery of birth against all odds. How dare we whine at our inevitable return to that prior state from which the vast majority have never stirred. What Richard Dawkins is saying is that we should not lament. He's saying that we should not mourn. He's saying that we should not weep. His worldview and ideology is completely incompatible with 2 Samuel chapter 1 and with the heart of David, and I want to say existentially, with the heart of most every human being, that we know there is something wrong about death of a loved one. Whether that's a child, whether that's my best man who died at 42, my closest friend, whether that's someone who lives the fullest and most completest life into their 90s. There's something wrong about death that calls us to grieve and to mourn and to lament. You see, Dawkins and many people view death as in, in an unbiblical way. They view death as part of life, of, a, of an evolutionary process. And, and get over it. Don't whine. Just be thankful. Do some good statistics and just be thankful that you ever existed. And move on. The Bible teaches something very different. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man... Sin entered into the world, that is through Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What Richard Dawkins does not believe is that death came into this world not through an evolutionary process, but through sin, and that it is an interruption to what God intended Life forever and ever and ever. So physical death and spiritual death came because of a historic event in Adam. And so, when people die, it is bad. It is an interruption. It is something that a normal human response should not be to wipe away my tears, but that we actually weep with those who weep. That is why David taught men and women and boys and girls of Judah this song, this psalm of lament, the bow. And that is why it is here in God's word for us to learn today. Things are not the way they ought to be.
That's going to change. We'll come to that at the end of the sermon. But let's come back to our, our text in this lament. We've looked at verses 19 through 21. Let's look at verse 22. He writes there, From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Again, I struggled with connecting with that particular translation. Look on the screen with me at the Christian Standard Bible. David is saying, Jonathan's bow never retreated. If you haven't been here in recent weeks, what happened in this battle is a faithful son was defending the life of his father, who in many ways didn't deserve it. But that's not how Jonathan thought. He thought like a godly man. And he was protecting his father and his people with his bow. This was the functional equivalent of an M16 in, ancient Near, in the ancient Near East. His bow never retreated. He, 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 was, he was firing against the enemy constantly, especially trying to protect the king, his father, who is in jeopardy. David is, is remembering this in verse 22. Then he says, Saul's sword never returned unstained. The imagery here is that the king, who carries this, this figurative, this royal regalia imagery full, you know, more than a weapon of, of effectiveness, it's he's the king. He has the sword. And David is, is saying the sword, it never got cleaned off and put back into the sheath. It never returned unstained from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty. You can feel the pain of David, who was not there. The thing that is astonishing here in verse 22, and in fact, let's, let's finish in the next couple of verses as well and see what, what, what is astonishing here. I'll hold that up. Hold on to your wanting to hear the rest of that thought. Let's look at verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, women of Israel, of Judah, weep for Saul. This is the antithesis of do not whine. This is an encouragement and an instruction, and I've given you the form to weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. This is poetic language, which we could paraphrase to say that Saul made your economy hum along, ancient Israel. And he provided an atmosphere in his reign for you to have nice clothes. He clothed you. He adorned you. How the mighty have fallen in battle. There's that refrain the second time. Now, what I was about to say earlier, 
that I should have waited to say until we got through verse 25. The thing, perhaps, in this psalm of lament that hits me the most is in, in these verses, in 22 through 25. And that is the linking of Saul and Jonathan together. Now, for those of you that have been here for recent weeks and months, Saul has not lived an exemplary life, right? Say right. I mean, I'm not going to rehearse because I think it would not fit with the sermon what Saul, the things that Saul has done. So I'm not going to mention what they are. So the reader who knows these things really well is astonished at this point. Because in verse 23, Saul and Jonathan are linked together. So the American in me is going, what? What? Saul and Jonathan? Hey, if I'm going to be in charge of their memorial services, we're going to do those guys on different days. But that's not how the Holy Spirit thinks. The Holy Spirit was not an American. The Holy Spirit inspired David to write these words, and he puts Saul and Jonathan together in these verses. In life, they were loved and gracious. And, and the reader might have, or the, the ancient Israelite might have needed a little bit of a reminder, help, help us out again. Um, he, he, the economy ran. He, he, the clothing that you have came in one way from the king. Weep over him. There is instruction here about how we remember people whose lives were not that well lived. That we remember them with honor. He links them together. David laments, up until this point in this psalm, Saul and Jonathan as one. I think it is the most outstanding thing in my mind because, in part, I'm a product of my culture. And we are Americans. And as I've thought about myself and I've thought about this text this week, I don't know if you think like I do, but we, we are a meritocratic culture. You know, we are a culture, we despise the idea of class structures, right? You can become whatever you want. Our, our, our billionaires who, in our country, it's an incredible thing that a country can produce billionaires, but the billionaires who made it on their own, who are self-earned. Uh, um, this is off the manuscript, but I saw one of those billionaires defending himself before Congress, uh, Starbucks CEO, and they were railing on him for how much money he had. They were railing on him. And his response was, I have a lot of money, and I earned that money. Nobody gave it to me. I'm getting away. So where I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say here is we have a hard time because we are so meritocratic. We, 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 we earn things and we, we, we look at what you've done and then we would want to schedule your memorial services on different days because, man, I just put Jonathan and Saul in such different realms. Because Jonathan has earned 
to have a memorial service on a day that Saul doesn't. That's not how the Holy Spirit is teaching us to lament Saul and Jonathan here. They're lamented together. They're both made in the image of God. It is not a meritocratic analysis of their lives. He's remembering the good of Saul right alongside Jonathan. So he laments Saul and Jonathan as one. One commentator puts it this way. Though grievously wronged by Saul, David nonetheless chose to remember Saul in a generous way, setting an example of graciously emphasizing the good that someone has done after that person dies. This is how we are taught to lament and to grieve in 2 Samuel chapter 1. David laments Saul and Jonathan as one. Last few verses, we are in the middle of verse 25. Uh, we, we left off with this refrain, how the mighty have fallen in battle. And now, which I was anticipating, David shifts gears. He's done what I really wasn't anticipating in that previous few verses. And now he does what I was anticipating and what, as an American, I wouldn't miss. Jonathan lies slain on your heights, speaking about the Philistine territory and its foothills and mountains. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother, my friend, my best man, my closest friend. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Jonathan and David had a relationship like few men have. It's the kind of relationship that few women have. What I'm trying to say is part of reading this psalm of lament, part of the response, again, what we really want is not to read the scriptures, but the scriptures to read our hearts. And what the scripture is saying to the reader's heart at this point is you want to have, if you're a woman, a close woman friend like this. If you're a man, you want to have a close man friend like this, like Jonathan and David have. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. And then the frame, refrain, how the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. One commentator writes this. He says, David is calling attention to Jonathan's, in these few verses I just read, to Jonathan's radical self-denial in giving up any right to the throne of Israel. Instead, he gave his absolute support to David, as the Lord's choice to succeed, fathers, John, to succeed Jonathan's father Saul, even to the point of risking his life for David. Th this is what's going on in these poetic words. In, in that day and in that culture, all, you know, all the nations around them had kings. This was Israel's first king. And in that culture, in the nations all around them, the, the successor to the king is the firstborn son of that king. That's Jonathan. But Jonathan saw, unlike Saul, that David was the anointed one. And, and he 
radically contra to his culture, had no interest in taking up the authority and the power of being the king and of extending his family's name in that way to rule. He was full of self-denial. And he gave his absolute support to David as, as God's anointed one to succeed. And he risked it uh, to succeed Saul. And, and Jonathan even risked his life for David. This is beautiful friendship. And this is deep, deep grief and lament. This is a friendship which is described, and we've looked at this verse several times in recent months, but in John 15, Jesus said this, this is my commandment that you, my followers, you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jonathan had that kind of love for his friend, David. And David is rightly grieving. This is not the way life should be. So David laments Jonathan epically because of the beauty of their friendship. Epically, extending beyond the usual or ordinary, especially in size or scope. David's lament for Israel is huge. David's lament for Saul is serious and genuine and surprising to an American like me. I have a lot to learn from this text about the kind of person that God wants me to be and how it is that I should grieve, especially for someone whose life was not that well lived. I want to close uh, today by just reading a passage full of hope. We ought not to miss the gospel hope of how it is that you and I are to lament and to grieve. And so let me just, let's look at this together on the screen from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, which means those who die. It's interesting how we use some biblical language as Christians, and some we just don't use at all. This is some of the language. We don't use this at all. We, we, we don't say about our believing friends who died that they have fallen asleep, but the New Testament says that. We don't want you, Thessalonians, to be ignorant about those who have died, those who have fallen asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. So we are to grieve, but not like others. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. God is going to bring Greg Hewlett with him when he comes back. This is part of how I am supposed to grieve the loss of my closest friend at his age of 42. He will be brought to life in a new way and resurrected bodily at some point. Continuing, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, 
We've been waiting a long time for the coming of the Lord. It's been 2,000 years since this was written, but we are still waiting. But those who are alive will, not, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. We're not going to precede them, in case you're wondering. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. There will be no death there. Death hasn't come about because of evolutionary processes. Death has come about because of Adam's sin. Therefore, encourage each other with these words that we will one day be reunited, and there will be no death, no tears, no weeping. But until then, the scriptures teach us how to weep and how to lament and how to grieve. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the whole counsel of God. Lord, I would never on my own, if I were selecting a, a topical sermon series, pick this subject or this text. So we are thankful for your wisdom in putting what we need in your word. Lord, many of us here today need help knowing how to grieve and how to lament. May we do that with hope. May we do that with genuineness, may we do that with brutal honesty, and may those of us who are not grieving currently be very eager to weep with those who weep, not to get them to pretend like they shouldn't whine or cry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.